with music, news and information. This is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday, the 13th of January, 2022. A very warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. Inflation in the U.S. has increased to 7% for the first time since 1982, piling pressure on the Fed to raise interest rates. Month-on-month price gains moderated to half a percent between November and December. Housing costs were up 4.1% year-on-year, while the cost of groceries rose 6.5%. Pandemic-related supply and demand imbalances, along with economic stimulus measures, have put the biggest pressure on prices in nearly four decades. But inflationary pressures in China eased in December, as growth in both consumer prices and producer prices slowed. The consumer price index rose by 1.5% from a year ago, slowing from 2.3% annualised growth in November. China's producer price index rose by 10.3% in December, down from a rise of 12.9% in November, as falling commodity prices helped to ease supply chain pressures. And the the price of pork fell by almost 37% compared with a year earlier. Cathay Pacific has hit back at government criticism of its procedures for handling crew during the pandemic. Patrick Healy, chairman of the airline, said crew members who had breached home quarantine rules were just a tiny minority of employees. He said the non-compliance of this tiny minority should not be allowed to overshadow the remarkable discipline and professionalism of the overwhelming majority of Cathay Pacific crew over so many months. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Louisa Fock from the Bank of Singapore. Speaking about ESG investing criteria is David Friedland, regional head and managing director of Interactive Brokers Asia Pacific. Money Talk on On Wall Street, U.S. stocks rose for the second day, shrugging off the highest consumer price inflation reading in 39 years, as investors bet that price rises will soon peak. The S&P 500 added a third of a percent to 4,726. The Dow traded between gains and losses before closing 38 points higher at 36,290. The Nasdaq Composite Index rose for the third straight day, climbing 0.2% to 15,188. Commodity and retail companies, which benefit from a strong economy, led the gains. In Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 Index climbed two-thirds of a percent. London's FTSE 100 advanced 0.8%. Hong Kong shares rose to a six-week high following a healthy performance on Wall Street the previous day. The Hang Seng Index surged 663 points, that's 2.8%, to 24,402. The Hang Seng Tech Index soared 5%, the biggest advance in three months. The city's technology gauge has rebounded now 10.8% since hitting an all-time low last Wednesday and is now at the highest level since December the 16th as bargain hunters stepped in. JD.com jumped 11% and Metran advanced over 9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index added 0.8% to 3,597. 
In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is up 1.4% at $84.84 a barrel. Gold continued its rebound, adding 0.2% to $1,826 an ounce. Bond yields were stable. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield was unchanged at 1.75% and five basis points off the 1.8% top seen earlier this week. But the US dollar index had its worst session since May tumbling 0.7% to a two-month low. The euro this morning trading at $1.14.5. The bucks at 114.7 Japanese yen. The British pound is worth $1.37 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 68 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.36 versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin jumped almost 3% to $44,000. Around Asian stock markets this morning, um, a bit of a mixed picture. The ASX 200 is up half a percent in Australia. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is down half a percent shortly after the open. Uh, in South Korea, the Cosby is up a quarter percent. And futures markets indicating a gain of about 130 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. And time to welcome our regular Thursday commentator, Enzio Ronfal, personal wealth advisor. Morning, Enzio. Happy New Year, Peter. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. And Happy New Year to Louisa Falk, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. Happy New Year, Louisa. Happy New Year to you, Peter. Thank you very much. Let's take a look first at these U.S. inflation figures. Inflation in the U.S. now hits 7%. That's for the first time since 1982. The Consumer Price Index rose 7% year-on-year, which is up from 6.8% in November. Month-on-month price gains moderated to half a percent between November and December, down from 0.8% in the previous period. But core inflation, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, accelerated even faster, rising 5.5% from 4.9% in the previous reading. And that translated to a monthly increase of 0.6%. Breaking those figures down a little bit, the cost of energy did fall 0.4%, its first decline since April. But over 12 months, energy costs are up nearly 30%. Housing costs were up 4.1%, while the cost of groceries rose 6.5%. That compares to a 1.5% annual average over the last 10 years. And used car prices continue to soar, up nearly 4% from a year ago. Um, Enzio, however you look at this data, there seems to be almost nothing good in it. What's, what's your thoughts about it? I think it's rather undifferentiated, the data itself, because there are two types of inflation. As we all know, the cost push and the demand pull. The, obviously, the headline figure is a bit of a scare number. But if you look at it more closely, a lot of this, I think actually about two-thirds, is because of less supply not because of rising costs, not because of rising wage pressures due to more and more people, too much money chasing too few goods, but because less of the stuff is around. Less people want to work. There's less food around because of the weather. There's less oil around because of OPEC and all that bottlenecks also. So I'm, I, the, the headline figure is a great sales gimmick, but I'm, I think one has to sort of scratch beneath the surface for policy reasons. Now, I know we've discussed this several times. Yes. Um, on the show and, and, and you've emphasized this point that it is a mm. supply chain shock that's causing inflation mm. and therefore the Fed raising rates doesn't cure that. It doesn't right. create more oil rigs or that's it. supply. However, if the Fed does raise rates, 
it will still curb demand, wouldn't it? So isn't it it's essential really to get demand down to meet this new supply, uh, this new supply problem? You're very sharp-minded, but I'm going to try and counter that, an attempt at the new year, which is that Mr. Powell also said that he wants to increase job creation by long-term stability of growth. Now, how are you going to get more jobs if you cut demand? Beats me. Mm. Well, it, Sorry. it seems that the Fed is in a bit of a hole then. I think so, yeah. I think, what again, it's the lack of subtle differentiation. It's between the short-term and the long-term goals. If the short-term goal is to cut demand, I get it with raising of short-term rates, even if short-term rates have little effect. Don't tell me that you buy less less socks because of, of a <laughs> 25 basis point cut and a raise in Fed funds rates. It's actually much more the 10-year government bond yield that will affect mortgage rates, as we all know. But that hasn't moved a whole lot. I mean, it's up a little bit, but not really a whole lot. Louisa, what's your explanation? Why is inflation ripping in the U.S.? Um, I think Peter gave. Uh, I think uh, Peter and also Antion uh, gave an explanation. Uh, a lot of those are supply chain distortion, and I think this is not just for the U.S. As you can see in this part of the world, and also in Hong Kong as well, uh, quite a lot of the prices, especially related to everyday lives, that's being affected. Um, however, from the equities market perspective, um, like what we have highlighted, I think um, the, the the major uh, type of war will be like a slower growth, uh, mm-hmm. higher inflation, and mm. t- together with the central bank policy. Uh, having said that, but I think uh, the equities market has reacted pretty fast uh, with the consensus. As, like if you look at the dot plot, I think the market has already factored in like some uh, three rate hikes. Uh, despite that, there are more aggressive uh, economists forecasting more. So I think the market is have been uh, quick in factoring in. And in fact, if you look at uh, the testimony. Uh, overnight, um, I think it actually give a more measured approach, and that's why it's also supportive mm-hmm. to some of the growth stock, uh, long duration do- stock, uh, particularly mm-hmm. real yields is still in the negative territory. But it, even if we get three, let's say we get four interest rate rises this year, that only takes U.S. interest rates to one percent. Mm. Isn't that still way, way too low when inflation is at seven percent? And it's still extraordinarily easy monetary policy, far too easy. I think if you look at it from a historical perspective, it's still ultra low. Uh, but I think the other way that I think um, uh, investors should also focus on is like what I've mentioned, the real yields that actually matters more uh, from an equities market's performance perspective. But I think there's actually one sector that's definitely will going to perform well. Uh, that's actually the financials, especially for the banks. Also, I would add to that what Louisa was just saying off the low real yields is gold, I think, might come back because that's, mm-hmm. there's apparently been a pretty good fit between low yields, real yields down and gold price up. So that might be something to look at. Gold's been locked in a range for quite a while now, hasn't it? Pretty but high maybe, range. Maybe it's going to break out. Who knows? Pretty high range, yeah. But here's a history lesson for you. I'm sure you remember yes. this. Oh, God. When the U.S. last had inflation this high, mm. um, it peaked at 14.8% in mm. 1980. Paul Volcker was the Fed chairman then, mm. and he jacked up interest rates to 19%. Mm. We're jacking up interest rates, or Jerome Powell is, to 1%. Um, I, I still sort of raise the point, hasn't it got to go much, much higher? 
again, I I think we're trying to repair the car with using knitting needles. I know I keep on grating on about this. I don't know that the 70s inflation, the stagflation that I've been banging the drum about for some time, low, low growth, high inflation, is the same as what we had in the 70s because there were also pretty strong growth episodes of my feeble memory is, is correct. Mm. So what, what's it going to take to get this under control? Better education. Um, That's going to take remote, a long time. Well, yeah, but I mean, the but the the interest rates aren't going to are also going to take a long time because they're not going to have any effect on the supply side of the equation. So mm. I'm afraid somebody has to get going on this. Well, let me ask you both about China inflation then, because there um, inflationary pressures in China eased in December. The consumer price index rose by 1.5% from a year ago. That slowed from 2.3% annualised growth in November. It was also less than the forecast of 1.8%. On a monthly basis, the CPI fell by a third of a percent. The producer price index rose by 10.3% in December, down from a rise of 12.9% in November. And missing economist forecasts of 11.1%. Louisa, I'm wondering... In the U.S., they've banned this word transitory, that, in, uh, that inflation is transitory. I'm wondering here if actually it's low inflation that's transitory in China, because there's a lot of pressure at the moment, isn't there, on the economy that could drive prices a lot higher. Mm, I think uh, that we have to look at it in several flows. Um, first of all, I think uh, we all know that in China there are uh, ongoing selective uh, lockdowns uh, because of the mm. Omicron uh, variant. That is going to put uh, some pressure in the CPI uh, on the back of like some of the consumer spending. Uh, secondly, what I care more about it would be uh, two things. First of all, the government has ramped up the supply of some of the commodities, and that's actually uh, is positive. Uh, uh, and the last one I would like to focus on is the purchase price index, the PPI. I think it came down uh, much uh, uh, a lot faster than consensus expectation. And I think this is positive, uh, especially if you look at the gap between PPI and CPI is narrowing. What it tells us is that uh, it should be more positive for the mid and downstream sectors uh, mm. in terms of margins. What we've seen in the past is that falling Chinese PPI usually feeds through to US CPI because of all the Chinese goods that are, uh, that are imported. So is this maybe may some good news for the US that may be a sign that US inflation is actually peaking, do you think? Um, I, I think what's uh, sl slightly different now versus in the past is two things. Uh, first of all, the supply chain bottleneck that we've talked about, um, and I think with all the various lockdown in place, it takes time to filter through. Secondly, mm. uh, I think the U.S.-China tension to a certain extent and the tariff uh, will also distort what we used to see in the past. I think the big one actually is going to be the stronger dollar. I think that just reduces some of the, and the. I don't think the Chinese want sort of a stronger renminbi. Mm. Um, the other point that I would make is just that the Chinese, from in my mind, being a more feminine culture, more holistic, um, are looking at growth from different angles. They're looking at it from um, credit support, import categories increasing, increasing consumer goods imports, boosting investments, uh, looking perhaps even at inflation, at, at, excuse me, at education, middle class education, vocational training. That's a whole lot more than getting fixated on a, on a 35, a 75 basis point increase in Fed funds. But aren't, aren't they also, they may be looking at it holistically, but haven't they also made a big policy error by locking themselves in uh, to this zero COVID policy, which is doing more and more damage to the mainland economy? 
Um, I think uh, bear in mind that in first quarter there are two key events happening. Uh, February will have the Winter Olympics, and in March we'll have the two sessions. And I think in light of these key events, uh, the uh, um, the zero COVID policy is likely to stay at least in the near term. Okay. Let me on finally on the inflation story before we move on we also had some data out from the oecd inflation in the nearly 40 oecd countries is at a 25 year uh, high the annual price of consumer the annual pace of consumer price increases in the oecd area jumped to 5.8 percent uh, in November, although there were large variations among countries, prices rose only 0.6% in Japan. But maybe the NCO, with the exception of Japan, uh, which has been struggling with deflation for many, many years, yes. this seems to be a global problem, doesn't it? Yeah, but again, it's, it's something that a lady rather unflatteringly told us economists, and of course I'm going to stay out of this, that an economist tells you the time by looking at somebody else's watch. Of course, I never do that. Um, what I mean by this is that we know all of this. I mean, we know that inflation is rising. It's just like the World Bank saying that, gee, global growth is strong. We kind of know that. Mm. So I don't, I don't, I just don't, I'm not bringing, sorry, I just don't get the value added of statements like that. Okay, we've had, also with the World Bank thing that they came out with, the North-South divide. Peter, you and I went through that, I don't think Louisa did, back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. North-South divide, hello, here we go. So <laughs> um, I really think this, this stagflation story is at least perhaps worth more of an airing than telling us the time by, by looking at somebody else's watch. Okay. Let me ask you about the markets, Louisa. Hong Kong, uh, we're at a six-week high now in the Hang Seng, um, and the technology stocks have really had a very nice rebound, up almost 11% now in just a week since they hit an all-time low last Wednesday. Um, why, why are people bargain hunting these uh, technology stocks? Is it that reason they're just so cheap now? Um, I think if you look at from a valuation perspective, yes, it does from like PE and all these. Um, I think uh, the, the rebound uh, in the near term could support by some of the short covering uh, of by the market. But uh, looking ahead, I think the key uh, date or events to watch out for will be when they actually come up to announce the next quarterly results. And I think uh, with all the new um, regulations details have started to um, unfold, uh, the operating environment uh, for all these um, internet and platform plays will have to be adjusted and reshaped. And I think the key things is um, the management guidance, uh, what, what they expect impact on the margins that is going to shape. But in the near term, uh, uh, a rebound is definitely po possible. And I think in the Hong Kong market, that also helps by the banks as well, which is also uh, one of the key sectors uh, in the index. Are the regulatory pressures easing on the tech companies, do you think? Um, we have been highlighting that um, the regulatory pressure is probably moving to the middle phase in the sense that uh, it's really the uh, implementation details that's being uh, uh, to be ironed out and, and to be announced. Um, so I think the directions is very clear, uh, gauging by the top theme of the common prosperity, but the details are uh, implementation. There, there could be some more um, that would be shaping, for instance, the top line growth, uh, the market margin and, and investment profile, that sort mm. of things that is going to shape uh, investor. What would be the sustainable growth for, for these companies going forward? Okay, well, it's great to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much. That's Louisa Falk, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore and Personal Wealth Advisor, Enzio von File. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3.
just gone 8.22 and it's nice to welcome to Money Talk David Friedland, who's Regional Head and Managing Director at Interactive Brokers Asia Pacific. Morning, David. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about sustainable um, investing, but let me try and get, first of all, some, some definitions, because we hear a lot of terms banded around sustainable investing, impact investing, ESG investing. What Are they, these the same things? What, what, what's the difference? Well, I think they're all generally the same other than they have a little bit different outcomes. So sustainable investing is just investing where you're choosing your investments based upon your beliefs, environmental, social, corporate governments, etc. Um, impact investing is trying to invest but make a difference. So you're choosing those same, those same guidelines, but you want to impact uh, firms' actions. And, and presumably get the boards of directors and other shareholders to make changes in those companies. Absolutely. And, and ESG investing? ESG, um, you, you're just choosing the same thing, basically. You're in, in, investing in the environment, social and government's practices of an investment, mm. and you hope trying to have a material impact on the performance of a company. Okay, so very similar type themes, things like, uh, I don't know, uh, sort of diversity and inclusion, uh, environmental uh, aims and, and so on. How can you be sure that the companies you are investing in actually follow those, those guidelines? Because we see a lot, of, they, a lot of companies say they are ESG compliant and, and, and considerate. How do we know that they are? That's a good point, and it's actually very difficult. There's a lot of um, background data and companies doing research on this now. And what we do, we created an impact app, which uses external sources um, and resources to choose these data, to, to, um, which determine these data. And even our company is getting a lower score, which is it takes a long time. Mm. to develop a score and, and you put it in your annual report you have to say, say your practices There's a lot of firms doing external research and this takes time and it's something that um, investors are looking at and it's very important and firms hopefully will look at their scores and make modifications over time which get reflected in, in the external resource scores and is it possible for retail investors to make a difference when you talk about impact investing, for example, you want to change the behavior of the company, uh, get the board of directors uh, to, to look at uh, doing things differently. Does it work? Do they change? Well, a absolutely. Um, I mean, you can look at the meme stocks. Um, that's, uh, you know, the, what, what's happened with meme stocks over the mm. past year, no one thought that retail could have a big impact on, us, on small stocks and, and move their prices to astronomical levels, but that's exactly what's happened. So this, this, um, the average person on the street or the new millennials who actually are communicating via message forums and talking to each other when they trade form these massive blocks uh, which do impact share prices and influence corporate uh, decisions. I mean, a thing that I've talked about quite a bit on this program, in Hong Kong, for example, there's a disgracefully high number of companies here that don't have any women on their boards, and some are Hang Seng companies and have never had a single woman on their board. You would think that you need to get that to change, wouldn't you, for the benefits of the company. Can doing things like impact investing affect things like that? Of course, because the shareholder advocates at share meetings raise the, the level, they raise the noise level, they, they influence the stock price. Mm -hmm. um, but to touch base on women directors, um, we recently um, 
made an effort to, to bring put a woman on our board. We did a big search. And the problem with, with that, unfortunately, is that you know, we, we approach a number of very qualified people. And due to either conflict of interest, they, they couldn't join our board. Uh, their, their firms wouldn't let them do external boards. Um, mm -hmm. And the pool of people that were available were quite small. For, fortunately, we found um, a fantastic um, candidate who's since joined our board, uh, Nicole Yoon, uh, doing our global board. And she's great because she offers a lot of experience for Hong Kong and China. But it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. But um, on, on the positive, there's a number of advocacy, av advocacy groups out there which are putting women forward and putting people um, that are qualified uh, forward to firms. And firms just have to reach out and make that move. Mm. So is, is the market for ESG investing, sustainable investing, how big is it now? Um, well, the, one metric we have is about $715 billion based on uh, the, the Global Impact Investor Network, which is a UN-based network, I believe. It's 1,720 organizations uh, get measured. But that's growing. And what we see are clients and funds, you know, these are from retail all the way to institutions, are demanding um, that we offer certain stocks. Um, they demand that, that they, we show them data of what mm. they can invest in. And even exchanges and uh, governments and other firms we deal with are actually influencing and telling us maybe some companies we offer on our platform should be taken off. Uh, okay. One in particular, which I won't mention the name right now, it's out of Singapore, um, might trade in wild animal products, and there's mm. pressure that we we actually stop offering that stock to our clients. So tell me a little bit about you have you've developed this app, um, which allows um, retail investors to basically select uh, their personal investment criteria. Tell me a bit about it, how it all works. Well, it's actually pretty neat because it's very simple. You, you choose a, a, among 13 different criteria of what you are looking, what, what, what personal investment criteria do you have, such as ocean life, water, health, ethical leadership, racial equality, mm -hmm. um, transparent um, corporate governance, and, and, and a couple others. Well, at the same time, you can choose things that you don't like. So I, if I didn't want to invest in a tobacco company, for example, I can specifically exclude that. Absolutely. So tobacco, high water, alcohol, things like that. Mm. And then when you choose a stock, we have an impact dashboard, which gives it a rating, um, whether it follows your choices or it doesn't. And you can make an uh, um, educated decision if you want to invest in that stock. Um, what, what's actually really neat about it, we also have... Um, something called the swap feature. So if you find a stock in a company that you don't, that doesn't meet your standards, we offer a couple of choices of possible, um, possible uh, companies that you can, you can swap to, and that's with a click of a button, and you can change your portfolio accordingly. So you come up with some scores, company scores, in these various categories. How, how do you calculate those scores? That, that's... We use external resources to calculate these scores, so we're really not um, we're not doing the calculations ourselves, and that's to keep it um, transparent and um, and fair and ethical. I suppose one of the best ways I can make a difference is give some of my money to charity. Could I do that through your app? Say, look, for certain uh, company or for certain areas, I would like to donate some of my investment returns to to particular charities. Yes, that's. Um, something we put a fair amount of effort in um, and we're expanding it to Hong Kong. Um, so r right now in the US we have a database of charities which we which you can just click a button and give a portion of your profits or just donate on your own. 
Uh, we're expanding it into Hong Kong, um, hopefully over time as we reach some databases to get an extended list of um, approved charities that are ethical, because the charities do have to be vetted as well. Well, that sounds great. Thank you very much for telling us about it, David. That's David Friedland, Regional Head and Managing Director at Interactive Brokers Asia Pacific. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And around Asia Pacific in the equity markets, uh, the SX200 in Australia is up half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down half a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is flat. Uh, the Hang Seng, all set to add about 130 points at the open in just under an hour's time. I'll be back tomorrow morning with more updates on the business and financial markets. Uh, stay tuned for Back Chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb this morning. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy, cool in the morning. It's going to become fine and dry in the afternoon uh, with a maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. And it's going to stay cool in the morning in the next couple of days. Temperatures will rise slightly during the day over the weekend. Temperature right now is 16 degrees and it's 75% relative humidity. It's 8.31 and a half. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. DAB lawmaker Holden Chow has called on the government to improve testing arrangements in Tun Mun after some residents complained that they had to queue for hours despite the government opening up 10 testing sites. Authorities fear silent transmission of coronavirus in the district and have listed Tun Mun as a COVID hotspot. Mr. Chow, the new territory's northwest lawmaker, said he'd told the government to add more testing sites and to encourage people to go to other districts for testing. I also urge the government to provide a real-time system to report the queuing situation of different testing centers scattered across Hong Kong. The reason why I say so, because I have been asking the people, they don't need to do the testing in Tumun. They could actually go to Yunlong, or even if they work on Hong Kong Island or Kowloon side, they can do their testing there. An expert panel advising the government on COVID vaccines has recommended that children aged 5 to 11 get one-third of a BioNTech dose, even though its distributor, Fosun Pharma, has not submitted an application to lower the vaccine's minimum age. The experts made the recommendation after evaluating the jab's performance and safety. Here's Dr. Alvin Chan, the co-chairman of the Medical Association's Advisory Committee on Communicable Diseases. They are safe. Uh, with normal uh, side effects. So I, I think um, uh, the scientific studies are going on, and of course, uh, it's been vaccinated only for uh, four months, you could say. It's not a long period. But yet, within this short period, there are already millions of children being vaccinated. I think uh, uh, that is also... Um, arguably uh, quite uh, convincing. No new cases have been found in overnight COVID testing lockdowns in Aberdeen and Yautong. Two residential buildings were sealed off yesterday after a 20-year-old man and a 19-year-old man tested preliminary positive. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing pressure to resign from some of his own Conservative MPs after admitting to attending a drinks event at his residence during a nationwide COVID lockdown. A visibly uncomfortable Mr. Johnson apologized to Parliament for attending the gathering at Downing Street in 2020. Mr. Speaker, I want to apologize. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through, unable to mourn their relatives. 
unable to live their lives as they want or to do the things they love. And I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Good morning.